Welcome to Escape the Earth. We are a sci-fi and fantasy podcast broadcasting from an undisclosed location within the San Antonio Public Library. We are supported by the library and by the San Antonio Public Library Foundation. So a big shout out to them. I'm Mary Elizabeth, and the other crew members today are Alyssa. Hi, everybody. And Tim. Hello, hello, hello. Today, we're going to be talking about Carol Stiver's book, The Mother Code. Uh, Before we get into that, though, we just want to warn everyone about a couple of things. First, there will be spoilers. We go into this assuming that you have read the book, and so we don't tiptoe around things. If you haven't read it, hit the pause button, go read the book, and come back. We truly believe you'll get more out of this if you've read the book. Second, this is a discussion geared towards adults, so sometimes it may go into a subject matter that is not for youngling years. We're not potty mouths or anything, uh, but we'll try to give a heads up if, if you want to uh, mute the volume if you're riding in the car with the little ones. Today's book, as we said, is Carol Stivers, The Mother Code, and just a little bit about Carol Stivers. She was born in East Cleveland, Ohio. I wonder if there's a West Cleveland, Ohio. Somebody's going to have to look that up after this. She received her PhD in biochemistry from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and went on to postdoctoral work at Stanford University before launching a career in medical diagnostics. She lives in California, where she's combined her love of writing and her fascination with the possibilities of science to create her first novel, The Mother Code. And that's from carolstivers.com. I think Alyssa is going to give us a a quick synopsis of the book. Sure thing. Thanks, Tim. The story begins in 2049, wherein Colonel Rick Blevins, a formal special ops soldier in Afghanistan, and geneticist James Said are brought onto a team tasked with finding a solution to a biowarfare agent gone awry. The agent, called Iknan, rather than finding fading away as intended, has been picked up and replicated in the life cycle of microorganisms abundant across Earth's environments. Its spread is both imminent and unstoppable. When the team is unable to create a cure for Iknan, their solution is to engineer a fleet of robot mothers coated with the personalities of human women and implanted with embryos genetically modified to resist the agent. Stiver's nonlinear narrative shifts back and forth between the story of the robot mothers and their young charges and the scientists racing against time to forestall human annihilation. These timelines eventually mesh, unveiling a further complication. The hastily released robot mothers are programmed to protect their children with deadly force, and the surviving scientists must find a way to regain control of the robots if they are to unite with the human children. That's a good synopsis. Thanks. I wrote it myself. (laughs) One of the things that I thought of in this when we were discussing our book list before, Alyssa, was discussion about the Kaiju Preservation Society. You said that you didn't want to read any books about COVID fiction, and this felt highly COVID-y to me. It, uh, I was a little bit nervous going into it. I had no idea what to expect from this book. When I looked at the outside of it, I thought it was going to be a sinister book about AI robot mothers. Um, And then when I found out that it had all of these kind of military Um, you know, these military people and scientists, and there was a little bit, the book kind of starts out with some hard science. I'm like, oh, what are we in for? But the bio warfare, yeah, I was not, I'm not 
it's a difficult time to think about apocalypse. I think we have so many yes. things going on, plagues and insurrections and all kinds of stuff that we've had over the past couple of years. I oh, definitely yeah. had those moments where I felt like, are we going down? Is this it? Are yes. we getting the apocalypse <laughs> of humankind? <laughs> but I made it through the book. Um, the book has, it has a happy ending, which was surprising. Mm -hmm. I agree. Oh. I was very pleased with <laughs> was that it wasn't doom and gloom it really wasn't doom and gloom throughout the book either there was fear and concern but there was always a, a hope and there was always a hope in there so I was glad of that I would I would say the ending is a little bit bittersweet but what I meant by that is like there there is a pandemic in there and they and they right. do go through some very similar things like uh governors ordering you know lockdowns and no mm -hmm. and no fly zones in their states and various things like that so it, it had some feeling of reality to it oh yeah um and, and i just have to wonder if you know some of those things were added in there as it was happening in real time with us i don't know when when was the book published 2020 it was published in 2020 so that that was during the pandemic um, uh, yeah, also, they kept calling it an epidemic. I was like, no, it's a pandemic. <laughs> but yeah, she had to have written it before. But yeah, who, what what does she go back and, and say, oh, you know what, this is happening now in actual life. Let's go ahead and fix some of the things that she had written already. I wondered that too. I think the mothers and the, uh, the presence of the children give the survivors of the epidemic hope. Mm -hmm. it, it gives them something to keep working towards. Because, you know, like some of the, some of the survivors are pretty sick at the end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, they just forestalled the inevitable for themselves. They didn't cure themselves or, or ensure their survival throughout. It, so yeah, when they, when, when that was revealed, it was like, oh gosh, okay. Well, now they're just trying to make sure that this next, that these children are safe. That was interesting <laughs> to read that and be like, oh no, these people they're not going to survive this, <laughs> but not that the children aren't going to have anybody because there, there is a group of people, the, the Hopi nation that is, some of them have survived. A majority of that, that community survived the epidemic because of gene science stuff that, <laughs> that, that they discuss in there. And, um, and the hope that there is other groups out there that did survive this uh, man-made uh, epidemic one of the tenets of abc warfare atomic biological and chemical warfare is, is that particularly with biological agents normally before you release it you want to have the cure ready ahead of time because the idea would be to inoculate your own troops and take out the other troops but that didn't seem to happen here they thought when they released this agent that it would it had like a self-destruct mechanism that they thought would keep it from getting out into the larger world but it turned out that when it changed forms after its use that bacteria could absorb the altered form and then reproduce the original form and through respiration release it and so it spreads very rapidly 
over a period of what, like two years, three years around the world. And so these scientists, you have sort of a dual plan going on where they're manufacturing both a, uh, a cure and these genetically modified embryos that will be brought up by robotic mothers. And the really interesting aspect of this is that the main programmer, Rose McBride, decided to that these robotic mothers also had to have personalities that mirrored the human mother, uh, the actual egg donor. And uh, I thought that was a really good touch, a really nice touch. Yeah, it introduced the quote-unquote human element to the <laughs> to the robots, which allowed the connection to be more complete for the the child and the robot. And I think something that was totally necessary from a psychological standpoint, I mean, you can't have these children raised without any human contact, without any kind of nurturing. You know, they had done studies where they knew that, that um, they talked about like how they created like a shadowy face for the infants to imprint upon and how important that was. And um, the robots, so they, they're essentially these big mechs. And then they, you know, they could do all kinds of things, walk around, they had treads for desert environment and they had, you know, big mechanical hands, but they talk about how inside the big mechanical hand, it would open and inside it was like a soft hand, a rubber hand <clears throat> that they would use to touch the, that the children would be touched with and cradled with. So they would have a sensation of touch and they have a sense of a human quality, a human parent and a human personality to help raise them to not be like to raise them to be psychologically healthy, essentially. Right. right. I thought the detail that was explained in there sparsed out throughout <laughs> throughout the books. I think if they tried to try to explain it to all in one go, I would have been like, I don't understand what you're talking about. But I liked how <laughs> it was explained to us and it made sense. It's like, oh, yeah, I totally get that yeah, monkeys need hugs. So these babies are going to need, <laughs> are going to need hugs too. And so it made sense that, okay, that these mothers, because that's what they're called throughout the whole book is mothers with the capital M <laughs> are, are their mothers that they have the personalities of their mothers. They have the, the mother coding of their uh, biological egg don donor mothers. So it's a weird way to kind of explain that. Think about it. <laughs> it is very well done. And the kids are, are very attached to their mechanical mothers too. Yeah. Oh, and they're like psychically connected too. There's some sort of chip that's implanted in their brain <laughs> that they can psychically co communicate with their mother. So there's an even deeper connection that, that bonds the mother to her child that she's protecting. Right. And that was an unintended consequence mm -hmm. of the, that uh, kind of rose as the AI learned, they, they explained towards the end of the book that the mothers learned from the children, just as the children learned from the mothers, because they were programmed not only with this personality, but as an artificial intelligence that was able to learn and evolve. So they developed this language as an unexpected kind of bonus, I guess, that happened between the mother and the, and the children. And they, the, they explain how it's, it's tonal. It's created out of, the, out of the binary code and it has a tonal sound to it. And when the child hears it, they recognize it as communication, which is amazing. I thought very interesting. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was really, 
that was really fascinating. I was like, whoa. <laughs> right. They were, they were supposed to be able to like ping their children and, and things like that. Like, wouldn't that be useful for parents now? If you, if you could just, you know, you don't know where your teenager is and they should have been home half an hour ago and you could ping them. Right. <laughs> So, so I'm like 40 now. And uh, my mom and I, we connected our, like we family shared because I don't have a phone, an iPhone, I have an Android. And through Google, you can like connect and be like, so now I can see wherever she is at all times. And sometimes she'll call me. She's like, why are you on the other side of the city? Ooh, <laughs> like, she's tracking you. <laughs> things I got to do. <laughs> Siri, show me where my kids are right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but um so this is like that but in a much bigger scale <laughs> in a much more intimate scale <laughs> well and that's really part of our modern time you start thinking about you know you just mentioned siri we talk about virtual assistants and how this generation of young people is growing up with a virtual assistant in the home. They're growing up and they're used to talking to Siri. They're used to talking to Alexa. And so that, you know, what does that mean for our children that are growing up today where they have a virtual assistant that's essentially maybe a member of their family? What is that going to look like in 20 years as these people reach adulthood? Right. It's a voice that they hear from infancy. <laughs> so they're sure their parents are like talking to her, like, play this music, play that music, buy this. But, you know, and so it's a voice coming from that little speaker that they've heard probably their whole life. <laughs> That's yeah, it's a really good question to ponder. Yeah. And it also it makes me think about how we attribute human qualities to machines. Mm -hmm. And what is that going to look like as the machines get smarter and smarter and as they have more personality? Because Alexa and Siri, they have personality. You know, they have, they're programmed like with too, some yeah. kind, some personality, yeah. you know, always... and how people respond to like Roombas, for example. They've done studies where, um, you know, people feel attached to their Roomba like it's a little pet. We, right. we put our personalities <laughs> on yes. objects. We, we personify things. Yes. <laughs> what is I, that going to mean I, for us? I'm polite to my my Google Assistant. I'm like, thank you. And she's like, oh, I'm just doing my job. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not just your job. <laughs> it helped me sleep. <laughs> yeah, it's like a thing where I've it's just this little hockey puck looking thing, but I'm like very grateful to it. And I'm always thinking. <laughs> when I think this, this story like turns that up. Oh yeah. It, it dials up to 11. Yes. <laughs> it's very, it's very. So one of the earlier books that we read was S.B. Divya's Machinehood. And that's hyper present in there as well. Um, because people have their virtual assistants implanted in their brain. It's like oh, always God. on. That's too yeah. much for me. <laughs> that's that, that's what I me. said. That's what I, I said. So. But Liz, who was partner of the podcast at the time, said like she was all on board with it. I was <laughs> like, no, no. Right. Because the younger generation has probably had their, they've been exposed to it more. Like I had my computer like in middle school, but I can't imagine if I had had a, 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 a smartphone since I was five, that would, <laughs> that would totally change my perspective on how I handle technology. Yeah. I'm older and I can't handle it. Like yesterday I had a dental appointment and my Google phone was telling me like, you need to leave now for your appointment. And I was like, where do I turn this off? I'm responsible for my own appointments. Thank you very much. <laughs> 
Yeah, my mine tells me now, like, uh, if I go somewhere other than work or home, it tells me your car is parked at an unusual place. I'm like, yes, I just parked it there. Weird. <laughs> yeah, and then I get in and it automatically assumes I'm going to work. You're 11 minutes away from work. Okay. Um, also, another interesting aspect of machinehood, just I know we're talking about mother code, but I keep going back to machinehood. But um, one of the things in there was that they had like a terrorist group of neo-Buddhists who were pushing for machine rights oh okay like like PETA but for machines right <laughs> correct yeah this well, book yeah. runs this book runs right up to the edge of that yeah yeah because it's just yeah you know, they don't talk about it but it's kind of there at the end when they're trying to decide what to do with the mothers to rescue the children because the mothers become overprotective and they lose contact communication with their children. And that just drives them into like overprotectiveness where they keep them in a, in a, in a room, a bunker, a house, I don't building 100. I don't know what it looks like. <laughs> and to, and the kids don't, they run out, they're starting to run out of food. And so, yeah, it comes up to that, like you said, but yeah, if they, if, when does a machine get its own, soul when does it get its own like is it when it's is it when it has a personality is it when it can start thinking on its own what what that's a very good question to that oh so many things that the next generation are gonna have to decide when you saw both views of it presented in this book where you have james said and james said is on the side of these are just machines we need to get these human children away from them and the children are like no these are not just machines these are my mother and you see at the end when Kai is able to, um, Kai, who's one of the young boys that um, was raised by one of the mothers, he's our protagonist on that side of the story. Um, and he is talking with Kendra, who was one of the lead developers in, in like in the, the robot part of it. Sorry, that's not a very <laughs> specific way of putting it. Helped create the robot mothers, helped program the robot mothers. And he's able to convince her that these are not just machines and they can't just be, they can't just be disabled and shut down that they are in fact their mothers and that they have this relationship with them and they, they are real entities that can't just be disabled and turned off. And, and, and you can kind of see how the mothers have different personalities because the kids don't all come out the same. Like there's the one that Kai and his a friend his, that he meets Sala, they meet another boy. I think is his name Kamal. Come on, come on, and he, and he, that, yeah, they're all different types of children. They have like you know, they you can see they came from different almost families. <laughs> and um, like Sela is free spirited, and and Kamal is very like Zen. You know, he's very focused on communicating with his mind to his mother, and 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 meditating. So and yeah, Kai never learned meditation, and. And Sela didn't didn't learn meditation, so there the the personalities of the mothers are very apparent in the personalities of the children too. I like Kamal because he talks to snakes. I like that too. <laughs> and then at some point, Kai, I don't know if he's having a fever dream or something. It seems that the Naga comes to him, but I think he might he might have been dreaming at the at the end when he's been severed from his mother somewhat and 
and he's at Los Alamos. And um, so, so it's like, is that his mother just really trying to communicate with him? It was very interesting, that part. Yeah, so the real trouble starts when the community like the protocol for the robots changes and they no longer are monitoring the biorhythms of the children and so it's when the womb gets shut down (laughs) the cocoon part and I was like oh no that's very symbolic (laughs) the the child has left the womb and then the womb gets shut down and that must just like because uh (laughs) like for a human mother when you know the kids leave and then they're they're out starting their own lives and like how can that just must really be a change in how you start viewing yourself as a mother so uh, I just thought that was kind of really symbolic (laughs) oh I didn't catch that that's a very interesting parallel to human life there are lots of very interesting parallels in here so when when Rose McBride met Nova did, did either of you go, aha, this is going to be an important moment? Oh, yeah, because she's yeah. the only one that was named. Yeah, yeah. We don't know any of the others except for Rose and Nova. And so, yeah, I thought that was very, that and that, that introduction of the necklace. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the necklace, it, it, she describes it as a silver necklace, a woman, her arms spread wide, thin metallic feathers stripping from them like those of a wing. Hair flowed along the length of her spine. Her chin tilted boldly upward. That was Nova Saskatiwa's necklace that she entrusted to um, Rose McBride that was later entrusted to Rick Blevins. That later helps him connect to the Hopi people who are Nova Saskatiwa's people. I know. I was like, oh my gosh, it came full circle. (laughs) That was some beautiful (laughs) writing. That really was. Yes. But I think he just, he was in her room after after the attack and he just it wasn't really entrusted to him he just sort of picked it up because it reminded him of her oh that's right and so he just sort of absentmindedly picked it up and stuffed it in his pocket and then he had this revelation that the programming was incomplete and he tried to follow the mothers as they were launched and ended up wrecking his motorcycle and was picked up by the Hopi Indians who end up turning out to be Nova's family. Mm-hmm. And they asked, why do you have my daughter's necklace in your pocket? Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry you needed a catheter. Why do you have my daughter's necklace? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Very important question here. <laughs> But yeah, it is an important question. <laughs> yeah, that whole, it was a little bit um, convenient, but I liked it anyway. <laughs> the, it was, yeah, it was really a beautiful writing. And then I thought also uh, for James Saeed, like his, his family had been holding a secret from him his whole life that he was related to someone who was organizing terrorist cells and part of the deal of them coming to the u.s is that they would not disclose that to anyone including james and then on his deathbed his father tells him well you know we were made not to tell you but your uncle was and that sort of clicks 
into place for James, like the reason he has endured extra scrutiny as he works on government projects. Yeah, that storyline was really but a lot uh, there was some really good character development and J- James's character was really interesting there was that whole immigrant aspect to it where he's like the second generation no first generation <laughs> and so his parents are wanting wanting him to fit into american society so much they cut him off from his past then i think that goes back to the mothers at some point they real somebody realizes that the mothers need to know a past they need to have something to able to pass on to their I can't remember. I don't really know how they connected it, but because a child needs to know their past and, and even like his name, he goes by James said, but his parents go by Saeed and that disconnect from his parents was, was very fascinating. Having that nugget of information doesn't stop him from repeating the same thing with uh, Misha, who's the little girl that, that they find in one of the crashed mothers they rescue a baby from a mother bot who has crashed and they're able to raise her and her name is Misha and James sort of adopts her with Sarah, one of the other scientists. And James finds out that Misha is actually Nova's daughter and therefore she's related to the Hopi people, particularly grandmother and William and Edison. Edison, right. And he he keeps that information from her. And she is forced to overhear it from others. That sort of has some consequences along with it. Instead of coming to him for information, she begins to seek it out on her own. You know, that leads to her being stuck in Building 100 with the other children and without a, without a mother bot, at least for a little bit. Yeah. I was wondering how that was going to play out because she, along with Sela, are the only two to have the same biological mother. So they they took two eggs from Nova and made two babies, where all of the other kids are just for, have one biological. They've just there's just one. Yeah, they should do one egg from each from the woman. So that was there's I don't know. My sorry, my my mind has like a whole bunch of ideas now because now I'm also thinking of chosen families and birth families and. There's a lot of there's a lot of themes and motifs that happen in this uh, book that I wasn't expecting when we first started it. I was like I like I was worried that it was going to be like a scary, crazy AI is taking over the world thing. But so I'm very pleased with what we read today. I want to read. I wonder. I'm glad that it didn't go <laughs> a different way. <laughs> Yeah, I too was afraid that it was going to go in that direction. And I and I think that you're right, Mary Elizabeth, it, it demonstrates motherhood in all its forms, and it does that very well. I think it's very interesting that, that after Sulla's death, Alpha C latches on to Misha. Yes. It's like she still recognizes, because she has the personality of Nova, because she's somewhat of a Nova, like a shadow of Nova, she still recognizes a child that is hers, even though she didn't birth that it's very interesting the vocabulary and language that they use (laughs) interchangeably in this book but yeah it was just wow okay it it lends to the idea that the mothers are a sense of themselves that the mother that was alpha c alpha c yeah alpha c still recognizes stella as her own even though she wasn't her her own initially (laughs) 
I just want to going back to the pandemic thing again. Could either of you screw yourselves away from your family and work on a project like this, knowing that the world was probably going to end and just not tell anyone? Right. I don't know. Cause he did eventually have to, um, he being James <laughs> got a phone call that his mother was sick. And, and then also it meant to him that the Iknan had gotten to the U S and he had been spending so much time away from them. And there was such a, there was a connection. He loved his parents and he appreciated them. And, and, and he felt really bad that he, he when we first introduced him, he's on his way to go see them. And that this is probably the last time he'll see them. And I, yeah, I don't know if I would be able to do that. It's, but I guess if you knew you had the, the knowledge to try to save humanity, I guess you couldn't help but try to. It would be really hard. It would be really hard. Yeah. I mean, I would do it if I, if I had the knowledge to help save humanity, I would feel obligated to do that and I don't know how well I would be able to keep it from my family. I might bring them into the fold and swear right. them to secrecy. <laughs> yes. But I, I would will definitely, be shot if you tell anybody, do not. <laughs> but I would definitely feel duty bound to do everything that I could. And, and, you know, I feel like I can say that pretty with some assurance just because of the way that I handled the pandemic. I feel like it was very important to isolate and to stay at home and to do my part and to not contribute. Yeah. And so I feel that if I was called upon to do my part in whatever way that I could, that I would do that, even um, if it meant I had to sacrifice and go without my family for a period of time. Yeah, it, it had been like a whole year that I isolated from my my family. Well, I do live in San Antonio. Most of them live in Corpus. But so there is link distance that assists in isolation. But still, there are friends and family here that I had to isolate from and it's very difficult and you know that the best thing is to stay away for their your, their own and your own good so but there's still communication <laughs> you know so yeah I think I, I would be able to stay away but I might also be like mom mom okay I just need you to stay in your room for the whole time <laughs> never leave never, never go out go outside fill your window put tape all over everything <laughs> get some oxygen producing plants like cover your apartment in them yes snake plants it's bunker snake time plants go is the way to go <laughs> that apocalypse you've been planning for it's happening yes. all of that water you've collected good job <laughs> so a lot of us uh as we read this couldn't help but make comparisons in different parts and things that came up were i am mother which is what a movie on netflix or a series i haven't seen that i thought of raised by wolves which is a series on hbo stephen king's the stand of course because there's lots of epidemic similarities there um the arrival and then i did finally see the lord of the flies part as well <laughs> the lord of the flies connection when the bot right. shut down and the kids are in charge and there's yeah. sort of uh two competing groups of opinions forming. i'm glad it's not as graphic as lord of the flies <laughs> they didn't go that far <laughs> they were just like well what do we do now <laughs> 
I, I like to say, you know, Zach needed to be smacked in the mouth. Uh, <laughs> but I think if uh, Kai had done that, then Zach's spot would have. <laughs> yeah. What would have happened? Yeah, what would have happened if the kids the started fighting? Been, <laughs> would the bots have put them in timeout? Would they? <laughs> I don't know. That's. Hmm. I thought about that too. I was like, gosh, what happens if these kids start going after each other? Because <laughs> they're so frustrated and scared. But yeah. I'm glad, yeah, I'm really glad it didn't, it wasn't as dark as many of the things that I was worried it was going to be like. <laughs> you know, like an iRobot, when the, when the evil AI takes over, I can't help but think, you know, sometimes that, that AI is not far from the truth. When presented with two decisions, they're invariably people who are going to make the wrong decision. Yes, I would, thought it was interesting that Levin's made a wrong decision and James was making a wrong decision. I was like, it's all the men making the wrong decisions in this book. <laughs> and whoever had decided to go ahead and release the thing to begin with. And Rudy was part of, of making the, the Iknan to begin with. <laughs> it was like, all of these guys are messing things up and these was- ladies are having to come in and fix things. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> sounds sounds about like daily life (laughs) so who's your favorite character in the book i think rosie is my favorite character the robot rosie the robot rosie Rosie? yeah (laughs) see i keep picture i keep keep picturing the the jetsons robot made (laughs) oh (laughs) i know i was trying to picture what what did these what do these real, what do these mothers really look like? I, and I, I kept develop, shifting from like uh, the that number five robot for <laughs> that number five still alive because of the oh, treads. Short um, circuit, short circuit, <laughs> short circuit. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then it was like it would like shift around with what had like a womb, and then it had wings. It's like mm, I'm not. I don't think I'm picturing these right. <laughs> But I did like Rosie and how she was. I get maybe we're, I guess we're supposed to like her, <laughs> but, but I, I think she was she was my favorite. Melissa, for you, mm, that's tough. Um, it would definitely be one of the Hopi characters. I really loved the grandmother, yeah, and I also really loved Sella and how yeah. she was so she was just a very strong female character. And when Kai had doubts, she had sureness and bravery mm-hmm. and she was willing to adventure, go out and get the bike, even risk, take risks. I just, uh, she's a hearty character and warm also. She's the first to touch Kai. She reached mm-hmm. out to him right away. She was sure of herself, whereas yeah. he was uh, tentative. She was my favorite as well. So, uh, yeah. I, I was very sad about what happened. So. Yes. yes. <laughs> I was surprised. I didn't think yeah. that, that would happen. Yeah. No, no. There was supposed to be a happy reunion between between sisters. And... Yeah, I know. That, uh, I think, but Misha went there knowing. But I don't know if she knew which one. She might have. I'm not sure. She yeah, figured think, it out. I think she, she figured, figured it, it out. out. Yeah. Um, but, but Sela didn't know. No, she didn't. That's sad. 
I was thinking that there were a lot of opportunities for happy endings. And it was part of that that was compelling me to read the book. I read through it very quickly. I thought it was a fast paced read. But as we're talking about it, I realized like a lot of them didn't happen. Um, Rick Blevins never got to meet Kai, really. They never got to have the I'm your father, I'm your son moment like that never happened. The sisters never got together. Um, you know, Sela never got to meet her Hopi family. Um, there was a lot. And yeah, Rick's, I agree. Rick's kind of a misunderstood character, though, because you because yeah. you did say that like Rick was messing things up, but but actually, if you remember at the very beginning of the book when the Iknan program had been right. proposed, Rick he Levin, was mad. Yeah, he he said no, we can't do it, and he he tried to kill the program. And they went around him and did it anyway. In that respect, I think be a little bit misunderstood. He does right. right. They weren't vindictive. They were. They just made poor decisions at times, like any human, like anybody. <laughs> well, he thought um, he was doing the right thing. He thought that, yeah. he knew that James said was a terrorist and a mole. He right. was trying to protect the entire operation. And that yeah. fear of of the possibility of James being a mole and then the the shock of losing Rose made uh, amalgamated into this decision where he decided where he said Re- black protocol release the robots and it turns out no she was trying to tell him not don't do that <laughs> they weren't ready they're not ready <laughs> don't do the black protocol yeah and then also then James later on when he's fearful of losing Misha and and he decides to try to basically kill the mothers so that he can rescue the children. It, yeah, it comes from a place of 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 concern and care. Kendra, she she is like, wait, but not there has to be another way. They and and Kai like, listen to me, don't kill my mother. <laughs> Things turn out good, but there was just yeah yeah and you know conflict has to happen <laughs> in order to progress the story so it's not a happy ending it's more of a everything it all works out in the it end works out yeah an a, it and worked I, out ending <laughs> i thought of i think the reason i compared this to like the arrival and to contact is because it has that blockbuster american movie feel scientists and working through a problem in the US and then they solve all the problems and it all works out in the end and everybody's happy. <laughs> so it had that, it had that, uh, it had that feel for me. Mm-hmm. And I read actually that um, Steven Spielberg's production company has already purchased the book even before it's released to make a movie out of it. So oh, perhaps wow. in the future, we'll see a mother code movie. Oh, okay. I could see, I wouldn't mind seeing this. I was, when I was reading it and then I got to the part where Rose and Blevins start falling in love. I was like, Oh no. <laughs> but, but then I got over it. Cause it's, just, it's not like, it's not the main part of the book. It's not the focus of the story. It had but a purpose. It had a purpose. There was a reason for it, but, but it wasn't the, the whole part of it. <laughs> no. And I, and I will say like, it was, it was present from the very beginning their their interest in each other was present from the very beginning so it wasn't like you know they're they're two favorite characters (laughs) and we have to somehow make the moment happen Mm -hmm. 
but yeah, it served a purpose and there was a reason for it. But I, I initially I was like, oh no, I don't want to read a romance, <laughs> but it's not, it's fine. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> so I had a lot of misconceptions reading this book, going into reading this book. So <laughs> I needed not do that. <laughs> I remember where where my train of thought was going now. I was wondering, like, why do you think Misha doesn't share what she knows about the outside world with them? I wonder if she worries they won't trust her because then she'll be too much of an outsider and she wants to be part of the group. I, I, I thought that, too. Why doesn't she just say, hey, look, I'm from maybe she was also worried the mothers would would not trust her also. Because she is accepted into them. Even the mothers are okay with her. She's also 11. And acceptance is hugely important <laughs> yeah, at that point true. in your life. Yeah, I mean, and nobody, nobody's perfect. I just, I just found it interesting. Like, she didn't find one person in that group that she trusted enough to disclose that to. Right. I would have thought at least one. Maybe not like the whole group, but. I thought maybe Sella would be somebody she would talk to, but she didn't. I think also once she was away, you could sense that, you know, she as a child was, oh no, what did I do? <laughs> now I'm gone from my home. And I think Sella would have accepted it. I think she would have. The, I think she would have. It just seemed to be in her nature. Mm-hmm. Who would you recommend it to? Hmm. I think people who do like, post-apocalyptic stories i think it would be a nice change of pace from something that's very dreary and it's very so it's post-apocalyptic but it's like right at the beginning of the post (laughs) that this takes place so maybe that yeah somebody likes that could almost be with the children and their mothers almost like garden of Mm eden-y their existence so it, it it's really hard to define Mm-hmm. I had that moment when Kai meets Sella. I was like, oh, this is Adam meeting Eve. There was that moment for me in the desert, something about it. Yeah. But, but I don't I don't know who I would recommend it to. I, I struggle a little bit with this question. Um, but I think anybody who is just in the mood for kind of a fast-paced read that has that blockbustery movie feel where everything works out in the end, because this is sci-fi that works where everything works out in the end. And that doesn't always happen in sci-fi. A lot of mm-hmm. times you get left with that eerie feeling like in the matrix where you're like, where am I? What's going on? This thing just messed with my reality. And this is not a book. It asks questions subtly. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mess with your reality hugely. You could walk, you could just take it at face value and walk away. You know, you could shake it or you could really sit down with it the way we have in this discussion and find all of these really nice themes that are in it. I think the author just did a great job and, and wrote a very beautifully crafted lyrical characters with depth i mean it's just it has all the all the aspects of good writing for me oh yeah yeah and all the uh all the threads are are followed through to their logical conclusion you may not always like all the conclusions but they they all have a an ending it's very satisfying yes and it it doesn't it doesn't have a deus ex machina like you know, the hand of God comes in and fixes everything. <laughs> right. Yeah. They do, like you said, follow through to their logical, their, their logical place where they should, where they should end. Yeah. 
I think I would just recommend it to anybody who who wants, you know, it's not really a dystopia, so you can't classify it that way. I'd recommend it to anybody who likes a good story. Agreed. <laughs> Does anybody have any any other final thoughts? I think I think we've covered this, and uh, so this is where we want to thank you for listening and say that if you've enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes we've done, please remember to rate or click the little heart button or however you show your liking for podcasts on whatever platform you use. You can view our book list, reviews, and suggested reads at goodreads.com. It's under Sapple Escape the Earth. We are the only Sapple Escape the Earth out there. Write us with stories, suggestions, random thoughts, or interesting sci-fi and geek culture information at sappleescapetheearth at gmail.com. Our next discussion will be Rabbits by Terry Miles, and we're also planning a live recording that will take place on May 28th at the IGO Library, where we will do some sci-fi trivia and have some goodies for people. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Escape the Escape